för ukastning en melding från vår annonsör. Med film presenterar vad vill folk se? Si? En gripande och stark film om 16 år gamla Nisha som hemma är er en pakistansk datter mens ute med vänner en vanlig norsk ungdomsjente. När hon blir tatt på färsken med kärleken bestämmer föräldrarna sig för att kidnappa henne till Pakistan. Och här i ett land hon aldrig har varit för och en tillpassa sig föräldrarnas kultur. Nisha spelas av Maria Mosta som Variety har omtalt som en vidundlig upptagelse. The Film Corner kallar vad folk si en film lika full av glädje och kärlek som den är er av nervepirrande spänning. Och både filmmagasinet och cinema har redan gett en tärnekast 6 och kallar den årets viktigaste norska film. Vad vill folk se? Si? En film av Iram Haak på kino från 6 oktober. I know that it's there, I know that it is precious, but I don't really care and, and I could be, you know, having this wonderful garden, children, trees, life and being depressed. Så writing about it is a way of elevating it. Sist uke så möttes två av verklighetslitteraturens stora författare, Karl-Ove Knusgård och Maggie Nelson på Munkmuseet i Oslo för den prat om skillnaden på äkta och uppdikta citata, de överdrivna ryktena om jägets död och om true crime. One thing I learned, I'll share with you, is that you can show more uh, parts of a woman's uh, body if it's dead on screen. Det här är Morgonbrads podcast. Jag heter Askil Matre Åsar. Forfatter Maggie Nelson är er känd för sina böcker som ofta bygger på verkligheten, utofiktion som någon kallar I i boken Red Parts så skriver hon drape på sin egen tante i Bluets försöker hur och fånga verkligheten runt sig med en liten strömma essay om fargen blå och blå ting och nu i The Argonauts som vant den National Book Critics Circle sin sin pris för bästa kritik så berättar hur om det att bli mor och om samlivet med en partner som har en flytande könsidentitet. The Argonauts är er nog ute på på norsk på Knuskors eget förlag. Nelson mött Knuskor på scen i en samtale ledet av kulturredaktör här i Morgenbladet, Anne Forsettos. So, welcome to this conversation, which is uh, presented as a collaboration between the Munch Museum, the Big O Festival and the Morgenbladet. Uh, I'm really pleased to have with me these two fantastic writers, and it seems so right to have both of them on the same stage. The obvious thing that connects the two of you is auto-fiction, auto-theory, the use of the self and the first-person narrator um, taking using the self as a literary device. Um, sometimes people talk about this being a moment where there is so much more, uh, not only auto-fiction, but also mixing of the genres of non-fiction and fiction. But do you come from the same traditions in any way? Or uh, mm-hmm. you write novels, you mm-hmm. write creative nonfiction. How do you see yourself in this broader perspective, Karlova? Uh, yeah, no, but I'm, uh, I actually never thought of that when I was writing. I mean, I was, yeah. I was, I was, I knew that I did something out of an ordinary novel, but I did it as a novel. So for me, this book is. You know, um, there's some books that are very important to me and, and, and that I relate to. It's, it's, for instance, Hunger by Knut Hamsun, which is uh, very much about presence and very much about self being dissolved in the presence. 
and Marcel Proust, which has this idea of the self uh, that kind of almost becomes the world, you know. Uh, I read someone saying that uh, um, the I in uh, Kafka and uh, uh, Proust had the same in common, that they were open. You could go enter it and leave mm-hmm. it, and it was like mm-hmm. it was... And I, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's much more the way I was thinking when I was writing mm-hmm. than you know, this is in this mm-hmm. tradition and this mm-hmm. is because of that. And mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's literature, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think probably less than, I mean, I'm sure there's some shared canon between us, but I think maybe less than that. What I always have responded to so much with the my struggle books and, you know, been you know, truly excited by in the way that very few things on the earth, maybe I shouldn't say this, but very few things on the earth make me actually really want to write. <laughs> and it is so uh, life-giving and sustaining to to read experiments that make me uh, want to do more and love more and be more and write more and that's how they made me feel but I think it's because of that in part which is that um, uh, I, I don't know how it is in Norway but in Anglo letters let's just say like or at least in the States there's been a I think I think it might be over now I'm not entirely sure but I think you know there's been a um, you know these kind of ebbs and flows between thinking that the eye is this kind of you know rotten bourgeois subject consolidated, and then you know that that the answer to that would be some kind of uh, you know either spoken by a machine or an invisible communality, or somehow we could you know erase that individual speaking position. And I've always been somebody who I think very much like you're saying, and I think this is what I recognize in in your work too, is that if you don't buy from the very get go that the writing is consolidating an eye, that you instead have this idea of the eye is open. Um, I, don't, I don't really, when I'm writing, um, uh, I mean, the terms in which my work is talked about a lot is kind of self and world or political, personal, or, you know, the intimate and the, you know, universal. But, like, to me, those terms, they, they're kind of lethal <laughs> to how, uh, to, to the actual project of um, the dissolved eye uh, or the open eye, which is um, uh, the place of composition f- for me. So I don't... Um, um, I, I think that part of why, say, in Bluets, I use a lot of um, philosophers is I've always thought that the kind of... People use the word philosophy as if it's you know it's the demarcation of the world of grand cerebral theoretical language. But when you read Nietzsche, you read Wittgenstein, these people are like sitting around in a room going like, oh, now can my right hand give my left hand money? Or like, what if I you know like these kind of not all the time, but you know some very you know and obviously Nietzsche was the one who talked about you know philosophy being autobiographies. There's a very um, long tradition of of um, uh, of enmeshment in the ways in which there's a kind of orchestral speaking to oneself, which is also speaking to the greatest cosmological issues that there are. So I'm I'm interested in that kind of enmeshment or in, entanglement, you know. Hmm. And this seems almost like a very strange question to ask, uh, since we seem to have we seem to have talked about nothing else since 2009. But I still want to ask it to you, Karlova. Why is the self a good literary device? I. Uh, you know, there's like a, there's no to me there's no other option. So I have not, I have not there's nothing outside of that in the writing. Uh, and I have never thought of that that I'm using it. To, you know, but the interesting thing is that it can. I mean, maybe every writing practice can take you to places, but that can take you to places 
where you haven't been before. Uh, that's that's writing, and it could do so in an essay, you know, or it could do so in 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 fiction. Um, but what is I think my writing is opposed to is uh, academic writing um, because there is no risk. There is a language available, and it's you know waterproof and it's you can't fail in it you can make it bad but you can't really fail you can't make mm. people want to laugh at you <laughs> uh, but if you invest yourself in it, mm-hmm. uh, it there's a risk and there is something happening and and it is also more true because and and uh, when it's uh, almost every theory or every poem you read is also immersed in a situation uh, you know, like in like in your book, that's 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 what it is about. So, and mm-hmm. and how I read it, and I guess I could have used the third person narrator, but that would be, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's. Um, when you write about subjective experience, there are so many things you could you could write about, uh, but of course you make a choice in all of those observations. <laughs> How do you go about finding those risky that's, parts? Yeah, that's very interesting, and maybe you could also have that same experience. That if you have a, a, a certain form, mm-hmm. then you can say this, you know. Then and that's that's what you can say in that form. And when you have another form, you could say it opens up in other mm-hmm. places. You know, it's like it is very much starting something, and then there is okay, this is opening up. But not that, you know, mm-hmm. somehow, mm-hmm. And, and and that is almost like a gift from mm-hmm. from the from the form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that you because mm-hmm. those three books that I have read is, mm-hmm. is so very different mm-hmm. in form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and form can be as loose and baggy of an idea as. You, but you know, I mean, with Bluette, say that book, I I literally stole the opening forms of sentences from somebody else from Wittgenstein, so it was. Uh, you know, suppose you were to begin by saying, like, those are the first lines of that book. That's Wittgensteinian formulation. So, like, but I put those all on index cards, uh, put them on my wall, and then uh, I would have, uh, I had, like, a list of stories on another wall <laughs> about the color blue, and I would begin my writing day by marrying, you know, one of those locutions. Like, suppose I were to begin by saying with, you know, a story, and then I would, you know, then I would start the next number by picking a different one and doing that, and that was... A kind of you know you have all these tricks to like formal tricks that allow you to tell stories and and sometimes you know you need other people like I wrote the red parts um, and it was a very painful writing process. I went to this murder trial with my mother. It was her sister who'd been killed. It was a very difficult time in my own life. I was about to move cities and had a bad breakup. And my mother was and I were every day watching this pictures of her mutilated sister on the big screen in a courtroom. It was just terrible. And um, I came back from the trial and wrote it in about three months uh, after it to just kind of make sure I got it all down. But I felt like I'd shredded my heart into little pieces and I gave it to my agent. And he wrote back and said, "Um, it's a little (laughs) (laughs) self-protective. Why don't you have another go at it or something? And I just thought, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Um, so sometimes you don't know, like you feel like you've taken this enormous risk and it's just pabulum. It's not pabulum, but it didn't go far enough. So I read, worked on it in a horrified state for another three months and gave it to him. And then he said, uh, I think you went 10% too far. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he circled the parts that he thought I didn't need, which he was, thank God, I took them out, right? You know? So I think it's just sometimes you can't see yourself uh, what you... Because the thing about autobiography is you can only say what you have allowed yourself to know. Um, and that's where I think formal tricks come in because they can tell you things that you didn't yet know or weren't yet ready to hear. But, I mean, that's a psychoanalytic uh, formulation, but I think it is true. So sometimes, you know, writing is like a step ahead of you and sometimes you're a step behind the writing and it's like a dance, I think. Mm. Uh, and since we're on the red cards now, there are so many true crime books that deal with murder and stories about murder. And in writing this book, you came into close contact with that sort of a narrative mm -hmm. around murder, mm -hmm. and you were also interviewed mm -hmm. your family on a show, a murder show. Mm -hmm. uh, what did <laughs> writing this and working with this material teach you about that whole uh, idea of the murder narrative, which is so popular? Oh, gosh. There's yeah. so much to say on that account. Um, my aunt was murdered in 1969, and <clears throat> even though true crime is as old as the hills, um, uh, when I wrote a, a first book about her death, oh, there I only had textual sources to use, like newspaper articles or like a dime store and uh, true crime books that were written about these murders. Um, and then in the interim period from 69 to you know, 2005, when this trial was, you know, there's this whole, I don't know if you, what you have here, but, you know, we have 48 Hours Mystery and, you know, Cold Case and you know, CSI and, you know, this whole kind of big um, entertainment complex around uh, crime. And uh, I was interested, having perceived a lot of it from afar when I had written the first book, suddenly I was uh, in a trial where there were all those cameras rolling in the courtroom from all of these places. And they wanted to interview my mother and me, which, you know, was a vexed ethical choice to... I mean, there's no... Why would you do that? I mean, it's just a stupid genre, a stupid thing to do, right? But I was very intrigued to... Um, have the chance to get to see the kind of interior of some of those spaces. And you know, I'm not moralistic, like, in terms of... Like, friends of mine would say, oh, will you still like me even if I love shows about, you know, dead and dismembered women? And I said, sure, you know, I, you're my friend. Um, I don't... It wasn't like... They're like a big, you know, bad, like, thing. It was more... Um, but there were things I learned, for example, like, in American... I just moved to Los Angeles and... Um, uh, one thing I learned, I'll share with you, is that you can show more uh, parts of a woman's uh, body if it's dead on screen, which is one of the things that crime shows uh, utilize, so that if it's dead, you can really do a long pan up and get a lot more kind of TNA in, uh, and things like that that were very interesting to me in terms of the relationship between you know, what we um, uh, want to look at. Um, and this is called autobiography of a trial, but it's also uh, termed a memoir on, on the first page. Yeah, they made me do that. I, they made you do that. I hate that paragraph. That yeah. paragraph is there because James Frey had just written, uh, yeah, I don't know if you know this book, like a million little thousand pieces, some number of pieces. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, ben, what's the book called? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, and he had 
been found out that he'd made these lies and he had to go on Oprah and apologize and it was this whole publishing industry scandal. Oh, Mikhail, you know. But, but anyway, what is it? A million little pieces? Anyway, no one can remember. It's, yeah, we've all repressed we've the memory. Anyway, the point is we that my publisher... The story of it. Yeah. This was a very strange experience where it first was published with Simon & Schuster, which was like a, being in drag for me. is like, it's not my gig. That was not my scene, but it was part of my kind of performance art of this project was to write a true crime book with Simon and Schuster. <laughs> it's very <laughs> strange. So, um, but they were very worried about fact and fiction and memoir, and that was the paragraph we agreed upon. Yeah, because in the paragraph, <laughs> it's sort of oh interesting God, no. because it says conversations and other events have been recreated to evoke the substance of what was said and what occurred, but are not intended to be perfect representations. Yes, because we all know that perfect representation is possible, so... <laughs> <laughs> other books have yeah, perfect, other books rep- are perfect, perfect representation, this but this one yes, doesn't. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but it still is interesting just because, from a more technical point yeah. of view, is um, when you describe things that happened a long time ago, as you also do, uh, how to create dialogue uh, is a question. How does one represent dialogue? Of course, you're not documentarists in your own life. How do you actually work out the dialogue in, in these kinds of texts? Karlova? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, of course, inventing them. By inventing them, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and it is, um, it is, in what I write, it's a matter of getting them as authentically sounding as possible, you know? Mm-hmm. And it is about uh, kind of, yeah, you try to try to hear that person and try to, you know, and it's, uh, to me, writing, I have been writing two books of fiction before I wrote this, and the interesting thing is that it was basically the same kind mm-hmm. of experience that I used the same kind of, you know, um, that memory and invention, memory and mm-hmm. fantasy are very closely connected so when you write fiction my starting point has always been memory you know a landscape or a, a certain atmosphere or something you know and so it comes everything comes from from memories i have and then it may be twisted and, and there's a logic to the novel uh, and it's the same thing when i wrote about actual events you know it's not like i'm inventing them i'm inventing part of them hmm. The thing is that I never knew where the text was going. So it was like I was discovering these things mm-hmm. uh, as I was writing, as you do when you are writing, even though I had experienced them. You know, mm-hmm. it was like if you see a landscape, you're walking here, you are, and then all of a sudden something mm-hmm. well known appears, and that's the memory, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. enter it, and then you leave it. And mm-hmm. but yeah, mm-hmm. to me, it's I think memory and, and fantasy, memory and mm-hmm. creativity is is connected very closely. Mm-hmm. And Maggie, how do you work with the dialogue here? There's there are some parts of dialogue here. I'm, you know, exceedingly deficient in the novelistic portion of my mind. I mean, there isn't one, so I'm not even deficient. It just doesn't exist. <laughs> so I think it's very. But I'm really taken with what you just said because I, uh, I know, I know intellectually, I know that memory is a form of invention. Um, but I always um, my my working experience is always that I'm trying to get very close to something, um, not that I'm inventing it, you know. But but what I'm getting close to, however, is not necessarily exactly what happened. So, of course, I'm not getting close to (laughs) 
reality, I'm getting close to what I want to say about it. And so, yeah, so I make, so I make, I mean, I don't make it up like it's not that things didn't happen, but um, I mean, I'm sure you've had this too, but one of the great humbling features of memory and writing is that, I mean, this book, say, features my sister a fair amount and um, the end scene of this book, I go, uh, behold my father's dead body um, in a funeral home. He died when I was 10. And in my mind, it was an entirely solo, you know, reckoning of the soul experience of being alone in the room with my father's body. And my sister read the book. She said, that's so weird. I was right beside you, you know? <laughs> and I said, no, you weren't. You dropped me off at that funeral home. No one was around for miles. It was me and my father's body. And she was like, you idiot. You know, she's like, I don't know why you'd remember it that way. So, I mean, you know, you get very humbled in that, you know, obviously what I was getting close to was my moment of reckoning with that body. And in which case there was nobody there, but that doesn't mean that I was correct, you know? <laughs> I was thinking about another thing that uh, connects the two of you is um, a very close attention to detail. Maggie, you've written this bluets, which is uh, only about blue objects, one blue object after Some the other. other. Things, Some other things, yes. <laughs> it, takes, uh, it takes blue objects as its starting point. And Karlova, you've published a series of prose books about tiny uh, things like soda cans and uh, mm. plastic bags. Uh, what's with the with the detail for both of you? Why does it hold such fascination? It's it's, it's to me it is a way of to see things, and I, I thought very much in uh, as I'm very interested in painting and painters and, and that kind of representation of the world, and and I wanted to do something like that somehow. So, so it's a matter of getting access to something mm-hmm. through writing because. In writing, there is um, there are so many things, but but there are also a distance in it. It's not you; it's it's a form mm-hmm. that reflects, you know, and, and comes back to you, and then you change, and then come back to you, and then you are seeing something you haven't seen or thinking something you haven't thought before. It's just a meeting you and the form. And if you are looking at something, that's what happened. That it kind of mm-hmm. changed a little bit, and then the text also is mm-hmm. something in itself, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. that's one one reason. Another reason is more kind of an existential thing, feeling that I have no presence in where I am, uh, and I don't. It's like everything is automatic. Uh, I just walk through the world without noticing it. I know that it's there. Know that it is mm-hmm. precious, but I don't really care. And, and I could be living in this, <laughs> you know, having this wonderful garden, children, trees, life, and being depressed doesn't care about it, you know, it's, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. So writing about it is mm-hmm. a way of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. elevating it uh, so that you can see it, but also mm-hmm. it's giving it, it, it a value. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is that it is interesting in itself what we give value. You know, there is something that is very, very high value and it's something that is, has no value at all. Mm-hmm. But in, in, in the world, they are at the same level, you know. It's we who make them. Mm-hmm. into what they are mm-hmm. and that's a basic insight all writers and all painters and everything everybody mm-hmm. who does this mm-hmm. have that mm-hmm. the world is invented mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. invent it mm-hmm. I think I mean not to writers mm-hmm. but, but we through language mm-hmm. and concepts mm-hmm. and I mean there's also just one quote I just want to say because I love this in the Blue Eds, William yeah. Carlos Williams has a poem 
called The Last Words of My English Grandmother, and her last words, she's looking out the window in the ambulance, and she says, what are those fuzzy things out there, trees? Well, I'm tired of looking at them. <laughs> and they get to the hospital. But what I love about that, and I quote it in the book, is that because there's a lot about suicide and despair and bluets, is like, you know, you've got to be interested, like Lori here was, right, like in those fuzzy-looking things out there, and that they're trees, you know, because when you don't, then you're tired of looking at them, and then that's it, you know. <laughs> and... Since you've written, all of these books have elements of your own experience and, of course, and also elements of the experiences of others around you, your father, stepfather, mother, uh, your entire family. Um, when you wrote these books, uh, they did not have the kind of readership that you have now. Uh, and as, as you've told before, as you've even had problems finding publishers for some of these books that are now being finally republished and being reread. Uh, does having so many readers, does that change the way you can use your personal stories in the years ahead in what you want to write ahead? Or I mean, thinking about readers seems to me very foolhardy. I, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, uh, so many things to say. I mean, I get exhausted with kind of shooting the autobiographical wad for a little period of time <laughs> and then living in the wake of what I just did, um, which makes me think I'll, I'll never do that again. And then, you know, the next volume <laughs> may appear <laughs> or whatever, and then you do it again. So I can like never say never per se. I mean, I think that, um, but I, I always think about not, not when I'm writing, but before publishing, I always think about the people who are mentioned in the book. I don't know who's going to still be in there by the time I'm done editing, you know? So, um, uh, but, you know, even like Bluettes talks a lot about a friend of mine who has a spinal cord injury. And, um, you, know, I, you, know, I, you know, I would say things like her feet are, are, are blue and smooth uh, from disuse, like milk or something. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't advocate everybody do this, but like because she's a dear friend of mine and, and because she has strong feelings about the status of her body, you know, if she hate, it, it, I mean, I would, I would send it to her and if she hated my description of her body, it would not stay, you know? Um, so, I mean, I feel like I, 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 it, it's not a... Um, it's not a black or white sport like you either care or you don't care. I don't think that's quite how it goes. So I'll keep on in my uneven, ungraceful way of, you know, along the road of caring and not caring. <laughs> and has it changed things for you, Karlova? Um, no, not, not the fact that I have many readers, um, but the fact that I did it and that it was such a heavy thing, so hard to do means that I, you know, when I know I'm going to write a new book, it's a, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to take on that again. Mm. Uh, and if I had known how hard it would be, I mean, exactly what we're talking about, writing about other person, yeah. I would never have been able to do it. No. But I was kind of innocent <laughs> when I started, and then it was possible. And if I, if I should do it again, it would be... I had you know to push myself and to really really to, to do it and and 
maybe one day, because that's where it's burning, and I'm very afraid of writing something that is uh, not, you know. Uh, I think the, the Autumn's books are not, but they are, they are very different. They are, there's a different kind of books, but if I'm writing a novel, and it is not very important, mm-hmm. you know, that would be terrible. And, and what to do then? Mm-hmm. Could you cut off your left arm again and, and, and do it or not? I mean, that's that's uh, that's a kind of dilemma, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't have. Mm-hmm. I can't do it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's been fascinating talking to you Thank guys. You. I know this week I've spoken a lot longer about all of these subjects, but the immediacy that you're talking about, uh, I would recommend for people to pick up the Norwegian translation of the Argonauts. Thank you. And we're waiting for more books in Norwegian. And of course, you can mm-hmm. always buy all of uh, Maggie's uh, older work in English as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, thank both you. of you. Yeah, all right. Thank you. Det var alt vi hadde i den her episoden av Morgenbladets podcast. Om du liker det du hører her, så vil du definitivt også like vår søsterpodcast da, hvor Kari Slottsven og Håkon Gunnarsen tar deg med in i Morgenbladets arkiv. Den finner du i iTunes eller podcast-appen som du bruker. Musikken du hører i bakgrunnen nå er laget av Beglomegg og Odne Meisfjord. Jeg heter Askel Matre Åsare. Vi høres neste uke.